Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Alton. All right, good morning. Welcome to another edition of I Communicate. And uh, yes, I am here with Joe Lyman again. I don't want to hear anything different about that. And we are doing part two of our discussion on empathy because we got a lot of feedback from fans um, saying how much they enjoyed the first show. And uh, it's it's such a broad topic. I mean, you could talk about it for, for, for days and weeks on end. Um, but when I say talk about it for days and weeks on end, what I mean is how to utilize it as a tool of influence and relationship building in the workplace. That's what I mean by weeks on end. So, Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's it's a pleasure to be back here. Okay, so just to get everybody up to speed, Joe, can you just really set the table here? Just remind everybody again, like you did in the last show, uh, difference between sympathy and empathy, just to set the foundation. Sympathy leaves you in the moment with someone with no plan of how to make it better. And when I say make it better, I don't mean solutions to people's problems. I mean that it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to awareness that things will change. You know, there was a there was a Buddhist master who said, "What people don't realize is that they are not uh, simply subject to change." They are change. And so regardless of the situation that we're experiencing at this moment, it too is going to change. And the moment we accept and recognize that, first of all, it becomes easier to understand that we're in this place. But now we can start to, start to look at it in a forward-thinking manner. And this is where empathy really is, is, is the difference between if I'm just sitting in the hole and helping you dig, that's sympathy. But if I'm standing on the edge saying, hey, that, that hole looks like one that I've been in before. Let me offer you my hand and see if I can help you out of it. Yeah, I love the I love the visual of let me let me offer you my hand. I think that's great. And so, at the end of the last show, Joe gave an example, and I'm going to give a similar example because the the starting point I want to talk about today is about default reactions. So, this is the example that I'm going to give, and it's you're having dinner with someone special in an expensive restaurant, um, and your server's invasive, impatient, short-tempered, and so the question is, how would you feel? meaningful dinner, someone you love, server with a bad attitude. So the way you'd feel, for most people, is annoyed and angry. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm getting annoyed just listening to it. Okay. So now, now you actually call the manager. You're that annoyed where you call the manager over and say, you know, I don't really appreciate how the server's been talking to us. And the manager says, oh, I'm sorry. Um, their son was just killed in a car crash last week, so they may not be themselves. Now, in that moment... There is not one listener out there who wouldn't, their entire thought process wouldn't change from being angry and annoyed to being s- sympathetic or empathetic and understanding. So the question isn't, why do we change to that in the sense that it's obvious, that's just human nature. But here's the question, Joe. Default reactions. We are racing from place to place and meeting to meeting and task to task. So we're talking about what deserves empathy, who deserves empathy, because for you to change your default reaction to being less understanding to more understanding, first you have to understand what your values are about who and what deserves empathy in the first place. 
And what we're talking about here is, I think, Joe, from my experience, that when someone upsets you or annoys you or frustrates you, first thing you have to overcome is the trigger. Because if you've been triggered for the past behavior, then your default reaction may be, here we go again, the person's malicious, they're out to get me, they're being passive aggressive. So my question to you, Joe, we all know the critical nature of mindfulness, but is it just as simple as, geez, I need to be more mindful that this person's son could have just died in a car crash? Or is it a little bit bigger than that? Well, I, I think it's a little of both. It's, it's, it's recognizing that the key is you don't know. You don't, I don't know what this individual has been experiencing. And you know, it's interesting, you ask the question, who deserves empathy? But it's kind of like the question, who deserves respect? And you know, we, there's, there's this backwards thing we do in our society when we make these little statements. We have this expression, uh, respect must be earned. But I, I find that, to be quite honest, I find that a little silly. Because I can't imagine myself walking up to, a, to somebody and being introduced to them and saying, wow, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. Um, I'd like you to know I'm going to give you the opportunity to be earning my respect. Just start right now and see if you can do it. That, that makes no sense to me because respect is something that I would just inherently offer to someone that I had just met unless they provide me with a reason to rethink that approach and empathy is the same way right i'm going to i'm going to plan prepare and practice those 3 p's that come back all the time i'm going to plan prepare and practice to be empathetic all the time but this gets to something that you just mentioned as well what is my habit because human beings are creatures of habit and we could have a we could have another show about the idea of emotions but in the end people think emotions are things that are constructed things that are imposed things that are from outside in to the, that become inside but they're nothing of the sort emotions are habits they are our aversion and our attachment and our lack of awareness so you if you grow up with a sibling there's a good chance that sibling can can get you triggered in 45 seconds but if I or somebody else said or did the exact same thing no response you wouldn't even register with you so our emotional constructs our emotional habits are what are going to dictate whether or not we fall into an empathetic response but that that right there tells us that it's, first of all, not something that's imparted to us by you know, nature. It's something we can control, and most important, it's something we can change and develop. So, Joe, let me ask you, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, we talked before the show about the examples of uh, celebrities or athletes, people who have a lot of money, that when they face some, you mentioned Aaron Hernandez in our last episode, people who face a plight around mental health or some kind of difficulty, that we tend to be like, you know, they, they've had it easy in their life. You know, we often talk about people who are uh, born with money. We'll use that expression, right? So is what you're trying to say that, um, and I'm going to make an extreme point to understand, there's no condition that doesn't warrant empathy. Like, is there certain rules where you'd say, you know what, Mark, no, it's, I wouldn't say it like that. No, there are certain times where I wouldn't be empathetic. You know, someone just killed someone. You know, like, what are the qualifiers in your mind where you would say, you know what, forget default reactions. The goal is 
to always default to asking yourself what you don't know, regardless of the situation. Is that the goal? It, it really is. I mean, Longfellow said that if we could understand the history behind someone else's bad decisions, then nothing would be strange to us. Right. We can see. And I mean, you, we, you talk about this in extremes like a, a, a Hitler or a Stalin or, or somebody like that or a Mao. And it's 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 recognizing that people don't do bad things or cr create difficulties just because that's a different story. There are people who do di create difficult situations for others who do harm others just because. But those are people who are dealing with mental illness of a sort. But in, in our day-to-day -day situation, the person coming in late didn't walk through the door going, oh, if I'm late one more time, I'm really going to tick my boss right. off. well said. Because they know they're going to get into trouble for it, and they're not wanting to get into trouble for it. And we often ascribe that behavior to people, and we say, no, they do it just to make me angry. Yep. But no, and just to be clear, they didn't make you angry. That was a choice you made. Well, and I think there's an important distinction to make with what Joe's saying is you may not be saying it out loud, they did it to make me angry, but you're thinking it. Oh, yes. You're definitely thinking it. And then, you know, we're back to that inner voice thing, which I alluded to on the last show again. And so if you did nothing else but your default reaction when someone shared information with you that was either sad, disappointing, frustrating, whatever, if your default reaction is, geez, I wonder why they did that. I wonder why they're, what, what their history is, as Joe said. I wonder what they're, why they're communicating or leading or doing that behavior. If that was your default reaction, and if nothing else, you just disrupted yourself by asking that question. That could, just the slight disruption of the question could slow down how you communicate with that person. And Joe, last week uh, we did a show on uh, the word disruption and how it can be a very powerful, in our society, distract and disrupt is often as negative. Very you know, you negative. Don't want to be, yep. But that's what we did the show on last week about when disruption in habits and mindfulness and behaviors can be a very positive. And that's what I'm talking about right there. So, all right, Joe, we're going to continue. We've got to go to our first commercial break. When we come back, we will talk more about uh, earning empathy as well as respect or not having to earn it. And uh, for Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be back. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate, and I'm here with Joe Lyman. I'm Mark Altman, and Joe, I know right before the break we were talking about um, the silliness of the phrase earning respect or qualifiers for empathy. And I know you had an additional thought you wanted to add to that, so please. Well, I did. And, and one of the things that you were just saying just before the break, you, you were talking about disruption and the idea of asking yourself that question. Should I be, is there something I should know about this person? And it's, it's funny that you put, those you put it in those words because what you said is a physiological situation. When you ask a human being a question... When you make a statement, there's you may get a, res a particular kind of response. When you ask a question, the other person's mind stops briefly, sometimes very briefly, but it literally interrupts them 
and forces them to think about it. You get somebody who's really angry and who's on a roll, and then somebody asks a question, and they're like, wait, what did you say? They, they, you can't stop your mind from at least attempting to process the question. So when you see this stimulus, when you see the situation, if you have built the habit of asking yourself the question, you're already interrupting the traditional emotional response to uh, the, uh, that situation. So even if you've done it in the past, right, they come in late, you get angry, you yell at them, they say, okay, it won't happen anymore. Two weeks later, they come in late, you get angry, you yell at them, you're interrupting that flow. You know, there was a, I, I, I saw an example once of a mother whose um, young daughter, four years old, had taken the milk out of the refrigerator. And you know, a four-year-old in a gallon jug, those things don't go well together. And of course, she dropped the milk and spilled it all over the kitchen. So the mother did well, the mother didn't do what you would expect. When I, I, I sometimes ask this class in a, in a training and people be like, oh, she punished her, she did this, she did that. And people are thinking, oh, I know what I'd do if that was my kid. And I said, this is what she did. She asked her daughter to help her pick up the milk. And then she said, why don't we fill a gallon jug with water and go outside and see if we can figure out a strategy to help you take the milk out of the refrigerator next time without spilling any. And when you say this, people just, they'll literally just stop and you see them start to smile. And they're like, oh yeah, that's, but your emotional response, four-year-old spills the milk on the floor in the kitchen and immediately you're thinking, oh great, now I got to clean up the milk. Oh great, why, you, sh you know better than to go into, the, into the, the refrigerator and take the milk out. No, she turned it into a legitimate learning moment without ever having to raise her voice, without ever having to make the child feel bad about it. She just said, we need to come up with a way to do this better. Well, and I think your central, and you mentioned the ABQ, um, ask better questions in our last episode, and what you're alluding to now is asking questions instead of making statements. I think it's enormous. And, and as a disruptor, what happens is when you make a statement in many cases, depending on the context of the conversation, you're, you're, you're tempted to make an assumption. You're tempted to, uh, uh, to be undisciplined and maybe go with the stereotype or go with the label or automatically attribute something to past history and exactly. precedent. Exactly. And so this asking questions is, it, it, it's not just, what Joe's saying, it's not just ask a question instead of make a statement. It's ask a question so you don't fall into the pattern of making an assumption and defaulting down a bad path. And I have to tell you, Joe, I had a conversation with someone I'm coaching this morning. Exact conversation was, I don't feel supported by my boss, and they never make time for me. And so I said, never? I said, that's a pretty strong statement. So I said, so what do you think's really going on with your boss? Do you think your boss doesn't care about you? Do you think your boss is just prioritizing other people and other things over you? Or is it something else? And I didn't even suggest the something else. And she looked at me or on the Zoom and she said, you know, when you say it like that, I'm not necessarily sure why the person isn't supporting. And I said, but you see, I had to create that change of thought process for you. What we're trying to suggest is when you think the worst, you know, again, what's the history, what's going on and changing the default reaction to asking. And by the way, asking a question doesn't just mean asking the other person a question. It means asking yourself a question. Well, and I think that's the key. And, and if you break it down, there are really, um, if you will, three elements to empathy, 
right? And the first idea of empathy is cognitive empathy, right? You immediately notice that there's something the other person is experiencing. You may have no idea what it is, but you've noticed that something has changed or that they may be dealing with something. And you're just asking the question, is it possible that something else is going on that I don't know about? So instead of your example with the, the, uh, the waitress that was being inappropriate, you say, oh, is it possible that there's something that I don't know? That's the cognitive empathy. And then there's the emotional aspect to the empathy. And you find out, yes, there is. And she just lost her son recently, but she's dependent on the income from this job. So she has to keep working and she can't just take two months off and feel better about it. So now, now I go from cognitive awareness, at least I ask the question, emotional awareness, and then because we are human beings and this is actually a normal thing for us to do, it activates our compassion. It's, it's, it's really quite interesting to look at compassion. People think that compassion is something that must be um, developed, that compassion is something that must be orchestrated, if you will. But the reality is that compassion is a natural outcome of empathetic awareness. Because the more you notice what's happening with other people, the more you notice everybody has something happening. Right. We, you were mentioning before, we sometimes see celebrities or, or athletes and we think, oh, they've got a perfect situation. But statistically speaking, there are no low income developing countries that have suicide rates higher than developed countries. So and and traditionally, high income individuals are far more likely to commit suicide than low income individuals. Yeah. And so 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 as Joe walks you through that. Let's transition to the word culture in the workplace. So what we're talking about now is companies that want to create a culture that prioritizes empathy. That's a, that's a consistent and normal and ongoing behavior. So picture yourself as you're listening to the show. Picture a group of leaders in a room and the CEO or the person running the meeting says, look, it's a real priority for this company. Um, we want you guys to utilize empathy, right? Well, who's going to say that's a, no one in the room is going to be like, well, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Like people aren't going to disagree with it. But the question is, if you want to create a culture that prioritizes empathy, first of all, people need to know how to be cognitively, emotionally, and compassionately empathetic. And so I think a lot of times there's this thing I've mentioned on the show in the past, this thing called the writing reflex, where you tell people what you want them to do and you get some kind of agreement response where people are like, okay. But then when it comes to the compliance and the commitment of that action, they don't really know where to go. And then when it doesn't happen, you're like, well, I thought we were gonna create an empathetic culture, but people never really understood how to do it in the first place. And I think that, uh, Joe, you know, the big point I wanna make around culture in the workplace and using empathy is, I think a, a big barrier, as I mentioned earlier in the show, a big barrier is accountability. And so the question is, if you wanna have an accountable culture too, you have to believe again that empathy is not enabling and that how do you create an empathetic and accountable culture symbiotically? Well, and that's the key because we have to start to answer the question, what does this look like? 
right? So if we say we want to have an empathetic culture, and, and I think you're 100% in asking about culture, because the one thing we know is that culture is like Pac-Man. Waka, 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 waka. It eats everything, right? If you say you're, that there's a written policy that says that everybody must be on time, no one can be late, but every day people come in two, three, five minutes late, and no one ever says anything, then if you say, what's the rule? The rule, it, contrary to the, the way people think, is not everybody's on time. The rule is it's perfectly okay to come in a few minutes late. Yep, great it, point. It doesn't matter what's written. So if we're going to talk about this and we're going to implement this, we have to ask the question at the beginning of this conversation and say, okay, if we if we agree that we want to uh, to to create a culture that values empathy, then the next question is, what will that look like? I love it. I think that's fabulous, Joe. I think it's really well said. And so when we come back for our next segment, we're going to talk about um, human resources. And we're going to talk about how human resources, who have all crap flow to them in companies, who really struggle to be empathetic because they're dealing with problems all day, every day, and you start to lose crap. What's more important? When do I sympathize, empathize, whatever? So we come back for our next segment. I want to give you a scenario and talk about the different challenges HR faces and how they can, in turn, become more empathetic while also advocating for themselves in the workplace. So for Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. You're listening to I Communicate on Full Service Radio 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. I'm here with Joe Lyman and Mark Altman, trainers for Mindset Go, and we're talking about empathy, and we're switching gears. I mentioned before the break, we talk a little bit about HR's relationship with empathy, and I'm going to give you a situation that happened the other day, real situation, and the situation is this. A leader had a uh, team member that was consistently calling out sick for work. And the leader was frustrated for a number of reasons. One, it was affecting the engagement level of the team, the productivity level of the team. And frankly, as which happens with most leaders, among other things, the leader was feeling a little bit like the person has lost interest and may be affected by COVID or who knows, okay? So the leader goes to the HR person and says to the HR person, he explains the problem, and he says, um, what do you think? So the HR person's reaction was, well, it is their right to call out sick. Okay? So the HR person does what I talk about in training a lot and uses HR speak. Okay? So HR speak is a very literal, truthful answer. So the leader says to me, this is someone I'm coaching, the leader says to me, you know, I was kind of annoyed. And so I said, how come? even though I knew, but I wanted him to say it. So how come? Well, I wanted her, and this is the key, I wanted her to do what I asked. So I said, oh, so you were upset because you wanted her to, you because I left this part of the story out, he wanted her to approve a job rec to hire someone else to either supplement this person or replace this person. And all she said was, well, they're within their right. So you wanted alignment. You wanted the HR person to 
do what you asked. Yes. And I said, was there any other outcome that could have happened in that conversation that would have been valuable for you? And he said, I don't know. I really don't know. And so I said, so in this case, you weren't really heard because the person who you spoke to, the HR person in this place, just gave you a literal and truthful solution. There was no validation. There was no questions. There was no nothing. It was just that. So, Joe, um, and, I'll, and I'll share with you in a minute how I advise the person. But in the meantime, I'm talking about uh, how feeling heard ties in with empathy. You know, this concept of not just answering the question asked, caring, and again, understanding where the person's coming from, why they think this is the best way or whatever. So how do you see feeling heard as a direct tie-in to empathy? Well, I think it's the first step because people will give you additional information if you ask them about it. But asking them uh, requires spending more time than just giving the HR speak factually correct piece of information. So you tell me this situation and I say, well, it's their right to call in. But I just discounted what you've told me without even acknowledging that you said it to me. So it, it's, it's almost a, it's kind of a guarantee that you're going to be unhappy with whatever I tell you because it doesn't it doesn't relate to what and how you've told me about it. All right, now, Joe, let's take it a step further. So now you are the, um, this is facetious, but you are the lawyer for the HR person trying to state her case. You responded that way, okay? And so what would be your rationale if you had to get inside the HR person's head and thought, why was that, why did she respond lazily? Why was that a default reaction? If you were giving her the benefit of the doubt, what do you think some of the reasons why she might have reacted that way? Because everybody comes to her with their problems and expects her to solve them. So in this case, she gave a, a literal, accurate answer to the problem. She did not solve the problem. She pointed out that from her perspective, it wasn't even a problem to be solved. Right. And I think that's one of the two reasons. Absolutely. And I think the other reason is time. Because with the amount of problems an HR team or individual has to deal with, and the amount of emails coming in and the tasks piling up, when that person walks in your office, it's another to-do list item to get done. So you're not thinking that you can allocate 15 minutes to be empathetic and understand and ask critical questions, because you don't have 15 minutes. So Joe's right. It's what he said, and it's a time issue. So my question is, Joe, if you're the leader, and we could have scripted their default reaction, because right when they said, well, you know, they're within their right, he becomes frustrated. And as I mention all the time to people, when you become triggered and frustrated, you become blind and deaf. You can't see what's happening, and you can't hear what's happening. So Joe... If we could have coached that guy in the moment and said, we would have rather you thought this, we would have said. Well, and it's got to go back a, a step further to the idea of what, once again, what is the culture? Because if I, as the HR person, said that, if you then come up to me afterwards and say, you know, that wasn't really the best possible response, I'm immediately going to be triggered and thinking, but I just gave you a, a, a legally correct answer. I don't understand. I did my job to the best of my ability. 
but it neither and now now you're angry and I'm angry and neither one of us is listening to the other or asking any questions we're just making these incredibly bad statements in our head what we think today we'd say tomorrow and we do the day after so we've just made the situation worse I could say so what would you like to see happen in this situation is your end result resolving the problem or getting rid of the employee. Joe, that is freaking fabulous. And so that's exactly where I wanted to go. So what you just proposed is the HR person could have said that, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Now, something I've talked about, not for a while, but something I've talked about on past shows and what we're calling the onus of communication. So I agree with Joe 100%. The HR could have and arguably should have said that. Easy for us to coach on the outside. We're not living it. So fine. But I said to this person, I said, that would have been great and ideal. But what if you, after sharing your story, said, you know, what I would love to know from you is, and this is what I said to him, what I'd love to know from you is, A, um, are you able to meet my needs on this? Why or why not? B, um, if not, could you share with me some insight on how to better motivate this person and how to have this difficult conversation with that person? Or C, offer up a plan B that even if you can't meet my needs at this present time, things that I should be looking for moving forward to know when it might be an appropriate time to take that step. Well, and you've just hit on what is probably the most important aspect of this discussion. It's a discussion. Because otherwise, what you have is two independent, this is the key, they're independent monologues happening at the same time. He's saying, how do I get rid of this person? She's saying, well, he's perfectly legally reasonable to call in sick. And that becomes the problem. There is no dialogue. It's just your monologue and my monologue going back and forth to each other and not really meeting each other in the middle. And genuine dialogue, genuine dialogue means listening just as much as it means talking because you want to preserve not the conversation but the relationship and 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 to develop to develop the the interplay between the two people but ask a question get an answer isn't dialogue it's monologue 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 well i think that's beautiful and frankly you you're you're each having a monologue anyway with yourself after the situation occurs, because you're each telling yourself think is going on. So why not remove the ambiguity and assumptions? And as Joe said, change an independent monologue to a joint monologue, right? Because that's what you're talking about. That's huge, Joe. I mean, that's huge. But your your comment earlier as to why that didn't happen in the first place is the answer. The the the, the half of the answer is time. Right. But the second half of the answer is culture, because the culture determines what value we place on how we spend our time in the workplace. And if the culture values an immediate response that simply complies with everything, 
that's what it will create. But if the culture values dialogue and getting further into a situation to understand its genesis, to understand how this can be resolved and what is it, what is it I want out of it? Sometimes a, a manager will say, well, just make this work. And you do, but it turns out not to be the thing that they wanted you to do. And you're like, but that's not what you said. That's not what I heard. That's not what happened. Again, monologue, monologue, not dialogue. So when we come back for a final segment, I'm going to press Joe on this culture thing because I have a, a different perspective in addition to what he said. And then we're going to talk about a really amazing communication tactic called motivational interviewing that involves something called effortless empathy. So when we come back for our final segment, we will discuss that. For Joe Lyman, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be right back. Now, I Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to our final segment of I Communicate. And uh, Joe, this is our final segment of two amazing shows around empathy. It's kind of depressing. Well, I have to tell you, I'm super excited about effortless empathy because I spend a lot of energy trying to be empathetic. And if there's a easier way to do it, I'm there. So, Joe, two things I want to talk about, one being the effortless empathy. But I want to get to something you said at the end of the last segment that really is a pet peeve of mine. You know, I understand the concept of do as I say versus do as I do and lead by example and modeling behavior. I get all those things. And, and it's something I... I support, I encourage, I teach, I get it all. Here's the problem. I'm running into more and more people in leadership positions that are unable to discern between what's right and wrong. And here's what I mean. If a person isn't giving their team member enough feedback, and they know it, and then I say to them, well, how come? Why aren't you making that more of a priority? I'll often get, well, my, my boss doesn't give me a lot of feedback. So when you talk about culture, we both agree that things have to start at the top, and culture is critical. Absolutely. But I'm getting a little tired of leaders using the excuse of a poor culture to enable behaviors when they do know right from wrong, and they do have their own core values, and they do want to lead a certain way, but the barrier for them to actually executing on what they personally believe is right and wrong is that it's not being done for them. And so that's my only thing about culture. It should be there, but if it isn't, that's not an excuse to just do the wrong thing. Well, and you've hit on it at 100%. 100%, I agree with you. Because here's the deal. Uh, it turns out your mother, who used to say, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off with them? That's right. Was 100% in recognizing that that's not the way to do things. Right? It, part of the problem is our culture is we've created a culture of following without exception right so we're just gonna follow the culture even when we know there are better ways to do it even when personally we would do something different and there's a certain cultural I'm gonna use this word on purpose laziness that's permeated our 
general culture that has affected our work culture. Because work is often a reflection of the broader human culture in any given society. And in a Western society, we've gotten a little bit away from doing what's right when we know it's right unless there's somebody watching, unless there's somebody modeling it. And, I mean, think about it. We can say, I, I saw somebody who, who made a reference yesterday. I was listening on, the, on NPR, and they said, well, I don't know. I read something on Facebook about how the vaccine can change your DNA. Actually, that's not true. But these are people who have opted to choose not to do their own research, to choose not to, to develop their own awareness, and to simply accept somebody else's. So when I say, oh, I can't do that, my boss doesn't do it for me, I'm actually just taking a kind of easy way out because, well, I can. And the culture in the workplace has to overcome that. And that's just, uh, I, I think that's a modern-day workplace reality. Yeah, I think, yeah. If the boss says, I want you to do this, and then doesn't do it, it's probably not going to happen. Well, and it's a great point because it also reinforces that if you say something's a priority and then you don't do it yourself, then the message is, well, I guess this isn't a priority after all, and that's the default reaction. A absolutely. So we're going to finish by talking about effortless empathy. And, you know, motivational interviewing is really probably my single favorite training to do, but the problem is I don't get to do it very often because it takes a long time. It requires patience and commitment and, you know, practice and the three P's, as Joe said. And the premise of motivational interviewing is to detach people from their emotions. When it comes to changing habits and changing behaviors, it's about understanding what gets in the way. Okay? And there are three principal con concepts around motivational interviewing. One is asking questions not making statements. One is active and reflective listening. And one is effortless empathy. And the goal of effortless empathy in this case is that in the analogy I've, I've always given, and I don't know, Joe, if you've heard me say this before, but the analogy I always give is building rapport in sales. So in sales, you'll often hear people say it's a step in the sales process. But it's not really a step in the sales process. You don't ever really stop building rapport. You're always trying to strengthen relationships with people. So building rapport isn't like, oh, I've checked off a box, I've done it. It's you're being mindful all the way through relationships that when there's an opportunity to get to know each someone and understand them better, you take it. Effortless empathy is the same thing in this regard. If I'm having a conversation with Joe and Joe's a smoker, Okay, which is where motivational interviewing came from with doctors trying to convince people to stop smoking and drinking back in the early 80s. If I'm talking to Joe and he's a smoker, and I lead with, Joe, you know, smoking is not really great for your health. Joe is sitting there with no expletive. Like, he knows that. That's the writing reflex, which I've talked about not doing. So, so motivational interviewing and using effortless uh, empathy is avoiding the writing reflex don't make statements. Ask questions to understand why they can't stop smoking. You know, why are you smoking? You know it's not good for your health, but yet you still do it. You wouldn't say that, but ask questions. Listen, and you know what the crazy thing about motivational interviewing, Joe, is? So effortless empathy is looking for opportunities throughout the conversation to be empathetic. Well, and the key here is that 
the we are creatures of habit right we've we've used that word repeatedly throughout these last couple of shows but as creatures of habit what is it that replaces an existing habit right talking about smoking how do you help people address the smoking issue you have to replace the existing habit with a new habit because it turns out that's basically the only way that people will change their habits if if we could just stop then if you told me as the doctor you know smoking's bad for you i'd be like wow I didn't know that. I, I somehow missed every public service ad for the last 75 years, and, <laughs> and I'm just going to stop smoking now. But it doesn't work that way. The only thing that will allow me to change an existing habit is to develop a new habit. And when you, with effortless empathy, you're constantly looking at ways to help people understand right. how to form the new habit. Right. So, okay. So the final thing I want to say on this to wrap up the show today um, is, so here's the key to the whole thing, is that when you're having these motivational interviewing conversations, it's the b- most bizarre outcome you're seeking, Joe. It's crazy. The goal of a motivational interviewing conversation is to help people reach a point of ambivalence. That's the goal. Not to change their habit or behavior. So you're having a conversation with someone about a habit or behavior you want to change. It's something they've been doing for a long time. It's ingrained in who they are. What's the likelihood in a 30-minute conversation that they have all these epiphanies and awareness after your 30 minutes, something they've been doing for years, and they go, oh, my God, I never thought of any of those things. Habit changed on a dime. Exactly. Not going to happen, right? Not a bit. So reaching a point of ambivalence involves this concept the one to 10 scale. So instead of asking someone, what's their likelihood to change a habit on a one to 10 scale, you ask them on a zero to 10 scale. And the mindset is on a one to 10 scale, if they said the likelihood would be a one, two, three, or four, you'd assume they're not gonna change their habit. On a zero to 10 scale, if they said one, two, three, or four, you would say to yourself, geez, why didn't they say zero? And so there's a mindset change there where when they say one, two, or three, or four during motivational interviewing, there's an opening. And there's an open-mindedness, albeit it might be very small, but there's an opening. And so the point is, if they say one, two, three, or four, in a 30-minute conversation, you're not getting them to a seven, eight, nine, or a 10. The ambivalence line is five. So you're hoping they walk away from that initial conversation and say, and, and, and they look at you and they say, you know, you brought some things to my attention I had never thought about before. Going to need to think about some of those things. That's your goal. Well, and the ambivalence is key because if I don't get to ambivalence, I can't ever change the habit. That's right. If I don't ever believe that perhaps I should consider new, different uh, just supplied information, then I won't do it. Because it, we know from studies of memory, if, if you look at how people think, if I give you a new piece of information and it doesn't fit at all with what you've been told, if you have no ambivalence, you're just going to never hear it. Uh, that's, that's, that's so right. So look, look, we'd love to hear from you on the show. Uh, you know, you can email at info at mindsetgo.com, call 978-793-1159. Uh, and look, we're, we're, we'd love to hear from you. We're talking about empathy, two great shows. And uh, Joe, thanks again for joining us. Mark, an absolute pleasure. And uh, for I Communicate, I'm Mark Altman. Thanks, Ted. You've been listening to I Communicate. 
with your host, Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.